podcast where we look at entrepreneurship and science. Those are the two intersections that we kind of look at a lot, whether it's space, biotech, clean tech, all those types of things. If it has science in it, heavy science, or people working with the sciences, or an investor looking at that type of thing, that's what we're going to cover on the show. And so let's get into who we're going to be joining today and learning about. Today we are joined with Patty Wexler, Managing Director at Starlight Ventures out in Miami, Florida. Patty is fantastic because she actually loves and is passionate about what she is building and what she is doing. And she is trying to build basically the world of tomorrow, like uh, you know all these advanced science-heavy technology companies that you normally... Like you don't hear, it's not like a Facebook, it's more like something that's going to help us better integrate with the internet or inter- integrate things into our brain or develop animal-less meat products, <laughs> like uh, cellular agriculture and that type of thing. So like things that were, are going to drastically change the quality of all of our lives, which I, I really like. Here are a few examples of some companies that should be some popping up over there. We get into how she selects them and finds them in this episode. So if you want to learn about Starlight, if you want to see what they're looking for, if you want to get a personal sense of what she likes to look for and how she finds people, and if you want to, if you ever thought, hey, could I do investing, or it, what? what is an investing person? Is it all just, you know, like an accountant sitting up in a, in a tower somewhere, crunching numbers and finding the lowest common value to make money and have a nice return? Um, I think this is a great example of someone who passionately cares about building an ecosystem that actually changes the quality of lives for all of us. And so you can kind of get a sense of what I think is a good example of someone like that. All right. So first question for you, and, and thank you for being on here. The, My pleasure. So I noticed that you, you, you guys have been open for about 18 months, like plus or minus, and you've invested in some, some pretty interesting people like Finless Foods, uh, Spin Lunch, and like, I think 24 other people. And so I'm curious, how, how do well, the first part is like, how many people did you interview to like sift that down to find like those people? Because I, I think they're like all rock stars. Like, I didn't see any of them that were like, oh, this is boring. Like all of them are doing exciting things. So I'm curious, like how, like how many did you have to sift through? And like, then how'd you, how'd you do that? I guess in 18 yeah. months. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, let's see lots of things there. I am also like in awe and in love with our portfolio. I do think every single one is pretty exciting. And we have a long list of criteria to invest in companies, but the first filter is, is this something massively impactful and revolutionary that'll make its mark if it works? And if that's the answer to that is not yes, we won't do everything else. So kind of by definition, if it made it to our portfolio, it's pretty cool and exciting to, to hear about. Um, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but the ratio ends up being at its broadest, broadest, broadest level, probably a hundred to one. But I don't count the first cut is, the truth is you have to do some um, uh, decluttering and we may have lost some gems in the shuffle, but given the time, when we get lots of inbounds, um, we kind of pretty clearly see, is it a company that is attacking a space that we're passionate about and that we have some relevant uh, insights into is it a team that we think is you know world class in attacking this problem because the things we do are so bleeding edge that usually there's not that many people in the world who even know to talk about the topic and so it's pretty easy to quickly sift through that um, 
despite the fact that we live in a huge world with entrepreneurs in every corner, somehow um, this network life that we live, there's a fairly easy way to do some reference checking and understand the strength of the team, which at the stages we invest in, which is relatively um, early stage, um, is usually the number one factor after we think, you know, does this idea have merit? And, um, and then we just kind of cross check the typical venture investing. We look at the product market fit and the phase, and we look at the long-term barriers because while there are a million incredible ideas, not all of them are necessarily going to become businesses. And this is a for-profit fund. And so oftentimes there are great noble ideas that will also have huge impact on humanity, but they're not necessarily best served by venture capital. So um, we do that. And, and we also do a lot of outbound. I mean, there are more than a handful of companies in our portfolio where we find a topic that we're passionate about, or we hear or read about something. And then we pursue either that specific company or look for who's doing something in that space that we really believe in. Is there, is there anything that you haven't found yet? Like if you think of the future and what you want to see, is there anything that you haven't found anyone doing yet that I don't um, know, if someone listening and is doing it, then they can like, you know, send you an email, I guess. Right. Um, so there's lots of stuff that even now that we have in our portfolio prior to hearing about it, I hadn't heard, but I can tell you also that it took a long time. So neural tech is one of the spaces we're really passionate about. Um, and we only recently closed on our first investment, a company called Open Water. And so we've been spending basically 18 months plus since we formally started the fund, sifting through everything, meeting tons of people. And with all the opportunities that we looked at, there was some issue. And um, Open Water was a company that for a year and a half, we'd been monitoring and pursuing and ultimately um, made an investment in. So. Finding people who are looking at um, non-invasive ways to make our life better medically, that's a super interesting space for us. Um, and off the top of my head, I can't think of anything that people aren't thinking about. I mean, driverless cars, autonomous plane, you know, food that doesn't destroy the planet, climate change solutions. I mean, there are a lot of creative ideas out there. Whenever, I'm on forums a lot. I'm not a lot, but like I sift through a lot of stuff myself. And whenever I hear, whenever I'm on a topic where we're talking about maybe autonomous car, cars, it's interesting to read like what people's criticism are. Are like one person was saying like that they they think people want autonomous cars because people are like they that everyone is bad a bad driver and it's like no machines are just better at it and then we can like you know plan YouTube or something. But have you have you ever noticed any like fun? I, I think it's fun like to see how people disagree with exciting technology because then you know, it's like a potential customer in the future, but have you ever noticed anything similar like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I think always new technologies have been super transformational and it's intellectually stimulating to imagine a world. I mean, the sci-fi writers are the best at helping us kind of think through. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's a mix of excitement with terrifying with human nature of knowing how you know life. I mean, now that... I'm a grown up and have young kids and I'd be like, Oh, they will never have these like, you know, simpler times when we all watch the same TV show at 8 PM. And I don't think that that was better, but you kind of get stuck to what, you know, mm -hmm. and I think it's also terrifying. I mean, the speed at which things are coming makes it hard for us to adapt. And, um, 
as a, for example, very extensive social media user, I think we're all coming to terms also with the fact that there's quite a bit of downside to our usage. And so we speculate, then we create great things. When we create great things, we realize that they, everything has its uh, negative side. I mean, I'm sure the advent of fast food and the microwave, you know, increased people's ability to have free time and dual income households and, you know, feed more people with less money. And that was great. And 50 years later, we're like, you know, now we're poisoning our bodies. We've got to find a new thing. So I think it's awesome to think about the pros and cons of, everything that's happening and nothing's going to be just better. Mm -hmm. The Stephen Fry, the, he's an actor and a comedian. Uh, some people, uh, he's pretty well known. I don't know why I have to describe him, but uh, he was, he wrote this book called heroes that just came out and he was talking about how we've lost the hearth. Like for every, every time in our past, we would sit around at the dinner table and we'd talk and like tell stories. We don't do that anymore. And it's very interesting like no one does anything like everyone just kind of goes to their own room or like i can't remember the other besides like my girlfriend or maybe like my close friends i, I generally don't sit down and talk and eat with people i'm usually like i i stuff it in my face as fast as i can to get back to talking to other people but like we've lost the hearth which is a very interesting thing like any i don't know how you like technologically i guess you could have like a wireless or a skype hearth where everyone, everyone is in like separate rooms but then it's like why don't you guys just sit down together but right. i think i think people are are, are trying like the people are trying to like set times aside and stuff which is interesting like how we're trying to like find like these interesting balances but, right i mean I, I don't think there's any right answer and i think at any point in time um you know a generation would have looked at the generation before and thought about all they've lost and all they've gained so i i can tell you as a personal experience um i'm trying to find the right balance for myself and so uh I used to be a voracious book reader. Then I went through, I would say, the last five years or so, a huge reduction, a combination of lots of things, but one of them being wasting time reading short, shorter form articles or uh, on my phone. And I just basically forced myself to go back and it's been really pleasurable. Um, and I have certain rules with social media just to like discipline myself. I think also this kind of mindfulness wave is it's uh, becoming useful because we used to have like forced mindfulness. Like if you were stuck in traffic for 45 minutes, that was kind of forced mindfulness. I mean, you could listen to talk radio, but basically you were doing, if you were stuck in a line in a bank, so you had pace. Now that every minute can be used with something more interesting. I mean, there's legitimate, amazing content everywhere. Um, and I don't want to waste five minutes I just want to listen to like one extra podcast or read one more article. I think we've all come to realize, I don't know that our brains and our bodies are um, at their peak when they're constantly being activated. And so now we're, you know, as I said before, you advance in something, then you kind of realize you have to take one step back and we'll, we'll find a balance, I think. Yeah, I hope so. The, another weird thing is a lot of the science fiction nowadays, it doesn't really, like they always said it like, oh, 22 you know, really far in the future, but I don't know if you're familiar with Old Man's War by John Scalzi, where the, like a brain pal, like a thing in their brain, but we're working on that. Like, that's not, that's not like hundreds of years in the future. That's like, I don't know, maybe like 15, you know, totally, so it's, totally. it's like we're writing science fiction and it's like, we can't even keep up anymore. Like the only thing we don't have is like giant wheel space stations, but I, I think that's within our capabilities as well. It, it, it is um, accelerating at a pace that's hard to fathom. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a hundred years old, <laughs> And uh, 
I had this favorite ride I used to go to at Disney World when I was little. It was called the Carousel of Progress, and it had a cheesy little song, and the same family would move in kind of like 30-year increments. And the last one was a futuristic thing. They basically dismantled the ride because the futuristic thing is so archaic at this point. Um, it was kind of Jetson-y, but in a way that has been totally done. Um, and I don't think they could keep coming up with something, you know, gripping like... 30 years from now will be the most sci-fi we can think right now, I believe. Yeah. The, uh, another funny, uh, slight funny joke, and then we'll segue on to something else, but the, I was talking with someone, and with all the CRISPR stuff we have coming on, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, we're like right online for those eugenic wars where like everyone, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan. For people I'm not there. a Star Trek fan, but I'm very closely following CRISPR and, you know, really concerned and interested in how we're going to deal with it as a society because whatever the bad, good or bad about technology, I think it's become clear to us that it's unstoppable. Mm -hmm. So um, we just have to figure out how we don't make it a rat race that destroys humanity. Yeah. the, the I, I was watching an interview with uh, Elon Musk and like he's been very like, hey, watch out that AI. But I, I think in this interview, it was with Joe Rogan. We, we got him in a lot of trouble in that interview. But um, the, he was just kind of like, yeah, we, we can't stop it. Like as soon as, like someone's going to do it. So you might as well like make like AI that likes us, which I, I think sometimes when people talk about artificial intelligence, there's that, the, the argument they make is that it'll like destroy us or like not like us. And then they, they make the analogy that it's like, how, how bad would you feel if you like wiped out an anthill? And it's like, well, the anthill never created me. So, I mean, it's a very different relationship. Like, I think, I think at worst, we would just be like, like pets, but we wouldn't know it. Like if they're like that far advanced, I think we'd be like pets. But, um, but like, it's just like, there's nothing you can do to like stop exactly what you're saying. Like there's nothing you can do to stop the technology. You might as well have it in your hands, building it in a, uh, a moral way. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. But, yeah. I think, I think as a, as humanity, we have a lot and a lot of things to grapple with within the next 50 years, including that, you know, our institutions seem to not be really well prepared for what's coming. I don't know that any of us have, um, you know, answers. There's people thinking about it, but there's no answers. So I think on a political spectrum, on an economic spectrum, on a societal spectrum, technological, there's going to be a lot of change. So even if I were to believe, and I'm not sure I do believe like Elon's worst case scenario, I think we have plenty of other important hurdles to address before kind of, you know, we become terminators, like, you know, squished under their foot. <laughs> yeah. the I think there's an interesting theory in that universe where like they send back the terminators to make the human uprising. Cause they don't have anything else to do, which is interesting. <laughs> but the, um, I always tell people like we're in interesting times because it's like, if, if we don't, if we don't do something like glow warming is going to change the world to an extent where we'll look back and we'll say, well, we didn't have birds or like, like things will be extinct. Like the, the water will be higher, you know, the world will, you know, sometimes when people are older, they'll say, oh, the world used to be nicer. And um, we'll actually be able to say that, but not in a positive way. Like it'll be worse off. So I see. Although, although I will say a, a good book that I read this year and I encourage everyone to read it, which is Steve Pinker's Enlightenment Now. Mm. And he does a really thorough job, very well articulated of reminding us that like we didn't start the fire a la Billy Joel. Like we always think we're on the precipice of the worst, but when people remember the good old days, mm. it's a very hazy look back. Like when you come back from like a family vacation and you start forgetting all the bickering and only remember like the 
happy family pictures, it like gets hazy over time. The world yeah. is better. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we don't have huge, huge problems. I'm concerned about automation. I'm concerned about AI. I'm concerned about food, climate change. But I think the world is still a better place. And the average human born today is likely to have a better life than they did at any point in history. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like the murder rates are down. Violent crime is down. So I think they're like we're, we're like the WHO is like 20 years away. Like We're really close to having no poverty in the world, I think. I was reading about this. It's been a while. But I think like we're really close, like no one in the world being impoverished, not being able to eat, which is, I mean, when have we ever had that as a species? That's, that's been really crazy for us. But I'm, I'm curious, this line of questioning is, I'm very curious, like what made you decide to take action and make Starlight and like start making the world, kind of like the Gandhi quote of, um, be the change that you want to see in the world. Right. Like what, what made, what made you feel like, like now was a good time and that you uh, could do it. Like what made you believe in yourself, I guess. Totally. So, so there were a lot of things. Um, and part of it was, so my skill set and my expertise was in investing and, um, and I love doing it and I really enjoy this aspect. And I recall I did consumer tech investing. I was, had recently given birth to my third child and I was testing out Medium as a platform, and I wrote my first blog post, and I wasn't even sure what I was gonna write about, and I read it many times since then, and it was basically a rant about, how can I be sitting in a zip code with such concentration of IQ and wealth? I was living in Woodside next to Palo Alto at the time, and only be hearing about these services that are just making the 1% slightly more comfortable when we have such big things to do. It can't be the right thing to do. It can't be the profitable thing to do. It can't be the important thing to do. Like it just didn't make sense to me. And so I started a a long, I would say in total, a three-year process of coming to Starlight where I really, I, I wanted to add purpose and meaning to what I was doing. And I considered politics. I considered operating companies with more mission. I considered continuing doing what I was doing, but maybe reinvesting in charitable work. And I met my partner at the right time. And this clicked. It clicked that um, I do believe in capitalism overall as a force for good. I mean, I think we need possibly a better system over time because it's not distributing well. But the uh, the force of wealth creation, I think, really drives for success. I always say I think Elon Musk has done more for the green movement than most people who contribute and believe in a greener world. Um, so, so this was meeting my passions and my beliefs. I really think that if you're an investor, this is where you need to put some percent of your capital. You know, there can be fluctuations in markets for all sorts of reasons, but the long term the structural issues we have in healthcare, in biotech, in food, in housing, and the incessant advance of technology and biology and computing. Mm -hmm. To me, it seems like there's no more obvious place to put um, private capital to work. Especially, I've been talking to a number of people and they've been comparing the, what bi- what's happening in biotechnology right now to the computer revolution in the seventies. And so it's an incredible time to do this investing. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. 
unshackling um, something that I think we've never seen before because like the human mind, the human cells, it, it, neurons and cells are um, more complex in many ways than all the chips we've ever looked at and designed. So to be able to harness that now that we're increasingly advancing our understanding combined with basically free and inexhaustible computing power, um, you know, the, the possibilities are endless. Is the, is there anything you're doing that's counterintuitive as a fund? I know, I know one of the things that makes YC like uh, one of those things that a lot of people like to go to is that they have like a, a, a great alumni network. And that's like one of the things that they, I think did very well. Is there anything that as you guys like 18 months in that you're trying to develop that is will separate you guys from everyone else besides, you know, from what you focus on? Yeah. I would say there are two things that um, I started the fund considering that they might not be great have turned out to be really excellent. One is um, being based in Florida. So it was originally a fully personal decision, which I thought I would overcome because I have a strong network in Silicon Valley and because we want to be a globally focused fund and we basically kind of overcome being here. Mm -hmm. And it's actually turned out to be an incredible advantage. First of all, to be a good investor, you have to have a slightly different worldview. You have to have a slightly differentiated point of view. I cannot tell you what it's been like to um, be in a uh, outside of the bubble. I mean it in every dimension of what a bubble could be but it is a more diverse set of views. It is a more diverse set of people. It is, um, it, it forces me to look at Silicon Valley as one place in the world, as opposed to the center of the world. And it is the center of gravity for many of the things we do. But um, being in Florida has definitely allowed me to look at things, I think in a way that I now recognize as being more objective. Um, it also makes it just pragmatically easier to invest outside of the valley. I'm already not in the valley. When you're in the valley, it's really easy to say, I'll just invest in the valley because there's so many amazing entrepreneurs and opportunities. And, and more than half of our portfolio is still there. So not to take merit away for, for the powerful force, but I think it, it has given us a better way to um, be more global, reach out, to more global investors and um, take the benefits and harness the power of the Valley while not kind of succumbing to it in a way, mm -hmm. um, especially when you're investing at the bleeding edge of what makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is um, investing in such a broad array of sectors. Um, I toyed with, should we narrow it down to two or three that we will build deep, deep domain expertise in and bring very specific scientific uh, directors to our fund. And our thesis was that there was some benefit in being broad, but now that we're a year and a half into it, I'm more convinced than ever that that was the right choice. Um, I think it's super important to know what you don't know and to know when you need to partner with uh, sector experts and bring in very deep dive knowledgeable people in a particular field but more than once we have found that we've been able to knowledge transfer very effectively 
between investments we make in space to things we make in material science to biotech and food. Um, and having this broad worldview, um, I think, is a plus to, to our founder network, to our recruiting network, and to our own deal flow. And frankly, you know, makes my day-to-day infinitely more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think Peter Thiel once said that when he invests in a company, 60% of it goes to real estate because of how expensive Silicon Valley is. So you're probably saving a bunch and your capital is probably being used much more effectively out in uh, just outside of the Silicon Valley and in uh, Florida. Because I, ma- I imagine it's much cheaper there. Like Boston and, and San Francisco are pretty intense. When it, when it comes it's to true. Value. It's true. Although I would say that in the things that we invest in, the team is everything. Mm-hmm. So I will pay Bay Area or Boston real estate anytime that that's where the talent is. What I think we benefit from is, especially when, when there were consumer businesses um, and many of them playing the Google and the Facebook and the Amazon game really made a difference. So being co-located and, and hiring those people and having that network really made a difference. Here, you really wanna find the true experts in a field. And I will say um, top colleges, top uh, countries investing enormous resources. I mean, places like Israel and China, which are two of our other priorities besides the U.S. There is talent that is deeply uh, like that, and so we will back them wherever they are. And if we prefer the real estate be cheaper, but it's really about the founding team. Yeah. And usually, when when we're investing in companies, the teams are small. Mm-hmm. As you scale, I think location becomes a much bigger challenge. That's fair. It's just, it's always an interesting anecdote, the, especially since I grew up, grew up in the, on a farm that I had like 150 acres. So to, like I traveled to the Bay Area and then just to see what people pay for like very little amount of land. It's, it's very interesting. It's insane. It's yeah. insane. I mean, that I agree. I think that will, what, what I think that will do is founders will choose to move elsewhere. And one thing that in the, typically at least one of the founders on our teams is a postdoc. So more often than not, they tend to be a decade older than the typical uh, startup founder of a consumer tech startup. Mm -hmm. So those people often choose to be elsewhere um, and they don't want to raise their families, you know, in a 500 square foot apartment that costs a million dollars. And I I think a friend of mine was showing me some, was taking it was put on like Twitter. I don't know social media very well, even though I use it, but she was like sharing some stuff and it was showing that like more people are leaving, like using U-Hauls and stuff, which is pretty interesting, but I'm sure a lot of people still live there as well. Uh, so, but when it comes to like finding experts, I was reading this book called Titan. It's uh, about, who is it about? Who's the oil guy? Rockefeller. There you go. Okay. <laughs> and uh, when he, when he made his wealth, he had to find people to, that you could trust to like delegate basically expertise. Like, are they, you know, an expert in oil an expert in biotech, you know, whatever he, he opened up a bunch of schools, but he had this problem where a lot of the people he would trust would end up being like swindlers and they would like steal money from him. And they didn't have a lot of laws back then. Granted, like some of these lack of laws helped him become a billionaire, but finding, <laughs> finding experts is always something that interests me. Uh, and he's an example of like, maybe not going the best way, but like, how do you, how do you know, how do you see that responsibility to an expert and then qualify them in such a way that you know that you can trust them? 
Yeah. Um, so some of the things are fairly obvious, which is reputation, prior experience, um, track record, affiliations. They're like fairly obvious initial screens. So um, let's assume you have a self-selected or you've selected a group that you think are potentially highly qualified. Um, I would say the two kind of secret sauce differentiators are judgment, which is a hard thing to articulate how you do, but you talk to someone and if you're well prepared, you, you can gauge, even if you're not an expert, with enough preparation, you can gauge if the person understands the points, can articulate, can distill things down. I would say two maybe other tricks that I, I find very helpful in general are um, you don't show all your cards. And so there is a small area of overlap that an expert will be able to validate their knowledge if it's consistent with what you believe or know to be true. Um, so that's a way to gauge somebody, even if it's not your domain. Um, and um, I'd say another thing is you get more than one expert and you triangulate and try to um, make sure that kind of the new expert that you're bringing to the fold uh, meets the standards and the criteria that qualifies around the other ones. And um, like most other things in the world, at some point there are a few um, trusted advisors that you've built over years of experience and personal relationship, and you rely on them to vet lots of things. So um, often, for example, we have scientific founders who reach a point where they need a head of sales or they need a head of a CFO. And for example, in the case of a CFO, I'll help them with interviewing because they don't know what a good CFO is supposed to look like. So they can understand if it's going to be a good fit on several dimensions. I can help vet them as kind of a domain expert on financials. And I think the same happens with other types of expertise. You gauge their communication skills, their willingness to do the work, their articulation, their drilling down into the details. And perhaps you rely on a scientific advisor that you already trust to vet their chops on a specific field. The Lee Iacocca, the automotive guy from the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a reference. Uh, the, um, he, he once said that you can tell a lot of things when you first meet someone, but you can't tell if they're lazy. Do, do you think that having like good references that like other people who know them would take care of that consideration? Like, oh, other people have worked with them and they know that they're a hard worker. Because like, it's one of those things, unless you found that, that maybe isn't a concern. Like 50 years in the future, you can tell if someone's lazy or not when you meet them. But um, do you think right. that, like, that accounts for that? Like the reference aspect accounts for that? Uh, um, I think uh, two things. One is different references are valid a different way. And so you have kind of, there's a general, I think, unspoken rule in the world of business that nobody's out there to give bad references. So if you're getting a reference from kind of a second degree contact about a second degree person, that's not very reliable. Mm. If someone I know worked with someone I'm very close to and they worked in close quarters, then yes, I think that does take care of it. Mm. Um, so very circumstantial. The other thing is um, laziness matters in some situations and in others matters less. So if, I need an opinion on if this particular patent is really, really valuable and differentiated. 
and the expert on it happens to be lazy, I'll take him any day of the week over a very hardworking, inexperienced person. So there, there was a matrix we used to say at, uh, in my old BCG days, and um, you can be, there's a competency axis and an arrogance axis or a hardworking axis, and you can be one or the other. You can't be both. Mm. We'll put up with your arrogance or your laziness if you're very, very competent. <laughs> I was I was talking with someone on the podcast and he said that and this is really interesting because maybe it's like an obvious thing because you, you've been doing this for a very long time, but like skills and experiences are like a commodity. And so if you if you're like really good at something like people will tolerate you if you're obnoxious, but as soon as they don't need you, they won't tolerate you anymore. The, there was a guy who made the good duck. He was like a chef and he was like really good when he was a kid. Oh, I don't know my age, I guess I, I don't know, inadvertently just called myself a child, but like when he was younger and like people tolerated him because of that expertise. But as soon as like the, re- like the recession hit, people were like, oh, I don't want to work with you. Like you're a jerk. And then like he had to grow from that and realize that people want to work around people that are, that are smart, but also, you know, pleasant to some extent. But For sure. I mean, I think jerk and lazy are very different. I think jerk yeah. tends to be something you want to weed out because it has really negative effects way beyond that individual. And so I think that's bad. Um, I don't think lazy is a good attribute, but it's a lesser uh, flaw than being a jerk, mm-hmm. um, in my view, at least. Um, but yeah, I think that's true. I think you know what you want is a competent person that knows what they're doing and that is a good team player. If you can, you know, ideally you can get it all. Yeah. The, is there a good example of the last time you've gone through like the vetting process? I, I know in like our pre pre talk, like there was a there was a case study or an example of a startup that you recently invested in that we were going to talk about. So I feel like this is a good segue into it. Um, talking about like the process, but who, who, uh, who, who are they and how did you know they were the right people? Got it. So um, I think I mentioned, so our latest investment is a company I'm super excited about. It's called open water mm-hmm. and um, they um, are a small team using holographics and optic technology to develop in the very long-term non-invasive brain-machine interfaces and in the medium-term develop a very low-cost portable MRI equivalent. So you can do uh, body imaging and really help um, reduce healthcare costs, improve detection. It has tons of applications globally. Um, So I first saw the founder and CEO talk about this and the vision was inspiring. The founder could not be more tailor-made. If you could conjure the dream founder for this company, you would have a person who is technically super solid in optics and holography and engineering, who then operated building companies from scratch to global scale, developing complex hardware and software engineering proceeded to have a personal life experience that made this a very personal mission and then have access to all the talent. So basically this is Mary Lou Jepsen. Um, And um, so you had the perfect founder and I pursued her relentlessly for more than a year. Um, When she finally gave us the opportunity to invest, we had to actually do diligence because up until that point, it had been a very remote, view of the opportunity and it is actually really hard science 
which at first blush, many, many people far more knowledgeable than I would say, this is defying the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. So we were able to assemble fairly quickly top-notch people through our own personal connections, our advisor network that we've started to build in the year and a half, and through our founders, in fact, one current founder and one prospective founder who we're still um, developing a relationship with, who are experts in their field, like senior optical engineers from NASA, um, neurophysicists at the top of their game, uh, people from UCSF, really like a collection of five ideal experts to do the analysis and we put them together and we looked at the science very carefully and then vetted it with other people who'd done some work, including a Nobel Prize physicist. Um, and they all concurred, this is amazing. It's challenging, but it's doable and world-changing um, if and when it works. So that was an example of how we did it. It was really using every source of our tentacles of network to, to make it happen. That's fascinating. The, it really, that it really is like the perfect C, the perfect founder, like someone who's been affected by it and has a drive. It's like, like you can, you can, you can make that any better. That's fantastic. The, yeah, no, we're super excited to be part of our team and can't wait to see um, what happens over the next few years. There was, um, there was a weird example uh, a couple of years ago where a bunch of investors invested like 200 million into a company and they never talked to anyone. And it was like a juicer or something. Maybe you're aware of Oh, something. Juicero? Yeah. And it like failed. And so it may, uh, it seems like you, from what I read from it, like you didn't have enough checks and balances, like these, like the screening process wasn't the best. I don't know, but like, it seems like this is the way to go about it. Do, and all the reputable VCs that I know of do the, do a similar thing. So I imagine this is like something that you refined over like years and years and years of practice. Have you ever like gotten it wrong, I suppose, and like had to like learn to be rigorous like this? Or is it just like something that you like slowly like, accumulated over time? Yeah, I mean, so many things. One is, I always say this about business, it's uh, common sense. It's just a lot less common than one would think. And it is experience and seeing how other people do it. And I worked many years climbing up the ranks in a, a big private equity firm and then doing venture capital. So certainly there is experience. There is um, making the wrong call on investments and then looking back and saying, when can I learn from this time on a diligence front, on a market assessment front, on founding teams, and you start you know, improving your intuition and your investment judgment. Um, certainly, I made plenty of mistakes looking back of um, investments that didn't pan out the way we wanted. And in each one, so, some actually panned out, and I would say I've made, I've made more mistakes than in other ones. I mean, it's the nature of investing that you're betting on something and you understand the risks and the risks you're prepared to take. Um, but certainly looking back, um, there's many times where in hindsight, we didn't uh, identify some key flaws of the management team, or we didn't early enough assess um, changes that were required to product market fit, or uh, to um, assess the competitive landscape a little more effectively. Uh, so, so there's always things that, you know, looking back, um, you, you, 
you refine each time, you know, to make it a little better. Whenever I meet someone and I think they're really smart and you seem very smart and like you're doing like really interesting things. It's the glasses. Yeah, (laughs) it's the glasses. Uh, 90% glasses, 10% you. And then um, I think sometimes people see, like they'll see Elon Musk and they'll think, oh, he's doing great things. And they'll think he's always been doing great things. Even though like, as we discussed, I don't think it was on the record, but we discussed like it took like most successes that people hear about today took like 10 plus years. So like they weren't, they didn't like, he didn't wake up one day and like had a a space company. (laughs) It took took a really long time. Same with Jeff Bezos and Amazon. I think, I think it took them like 15, like 10 years to make a profit or something like that. And so whenever I I meet people, I'm always curious, like what were the 10 years previous to this, like to get you to this stage? Like what were, what were some of the things that you had to overcome to be where you are today? And in, in hindsight, can you see how some of them like were, were guiding you here versus like you, like you, to some extent, like you were you're always going to end up here based on who you are and that you can see it in, like in the river mirror. A good example of this is Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he had a head, there's a three book series on him. And like, when you read about him, he's like, oh, he always was going to be president. That guy, he had like something special about him. He was, he was intense. But um, anything like that, that strikes true with you? Yeah. Um, so I think I could have been other things as well. Um, so I don't think I was born to do this, but there were definitely, as I look back in my career, um, I was very academically oriented. I love intellectual stimulation. I like learning new things and I'm very analytical. So this space suited me. Um, in my early career, after I graduated as an engineer, I did consulting and I did banking and I did corporate strategy. And then when I put those all together, I said, you know, I thought banking was an excellent school for learning how to think about it, but it wasn't intellectual in building something. Consulting was fascinating in understanding different industries and figuring out problems, but I hated putting a deck on somebody else's desk and moving on. And corporate strategy was actually starting to to build those things together, but it was still kind of like a corporate arm without getting things done. So then private equity meshed all these things for me together, kind of all my stronger suits with all my passions. And so because I came from the world of media, investing in media and technology made a lot of sense at the time. And I did that for five years and was an excellent education and it was still um, bigger deals, bigger transactions. So it was like a meteor investment process. And then I honed my investment judgment, which is different the more you have to bet on a team and an idea and less on kind of uh, company prospects and there's less industry information to really masticate and understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found a real passion for earlier uh, stage investing And then the clincher was, I think I talked about it before, it was like, I just felt unfulfilled in a way by just doing consumer tech when there were massive opportunities. And frankly, I also think from a just returns perspective, I think finding something big that advances healthcare, that advances transportation or housing has got to be bigger than finding, you know, a different way to live our lives slightly better. So um, it just kind of all meshed. So I do think I came here, it, it all built up to this, but I can imagine a universe in which it would have built up to other things. I have other passions. I 
in another life, I think I might have been a lawyer or an architect. Is there any is there any art in you? I've I've, I've talked to a lot of scientists, and it's like Einstein. He was a violinist. I don't know if that's the right term for it. I met a lot of people who are painters. Are is, is are you a, an artist at all? And you're to complement it. I would love to say that I am, and I think I'm not. And I do know plenty of people in the Valley, especially, um, you know, two of my former bosses were half musicians, half investors. And I think it is a real trait. It's like a left brain, right brain thing. Mm -hmm. I like to think of myself as creative. I loved designing and decorating my home. And I have, you know, I enjoy doing kind of crafty things. But but no, I think um, I, I'm much more analytical and, and, and less creative than, than I wish in my parallel universe. Makes sense. I mean, depending on how these longevity things work out, you could have anywhere between 60 and like a couple hundred years. So absolutely. Some. So absolutely. There, there's a story with Dr. Seuss where he was about to like go downtown, and like throw his stuff away. And like he bumped into a friend and like that friend got him published. Was there anyone who ever took a chance on you like that? Or is it, has it been a lot of like personal working and like yeah, slowly no, I, I've had really, really excellent mentors in my life. And um, I'll mention two, although I will immediately feel terrible that I'm sure I omitted more. Um, but in my first job um, out of college, it was kind of related to my thesis. I worked at a cement company in uh, my home country of Venezuela. And um, I was graduating as an engineer. And if, if nobody had kind of put me on a track, I don't know, I might've ended up working 10 years in a cement plant. I'm not sure um, where I would have ended up and maybe somewhere great, but um, the head of strategy and later CEO of um, a big chunk of the company told me, you have extraordinary potential, you know, this is can't be what you're doing. You should go and encouraged me to go to uh, BCG and learn more broadly about industries and management and took me there. I would say another great mentor in my life was um, my former boss, Roger McNamee, who's a, a very well-known longtime tech investor in the Valley. And um, he, uh, when I joined Elevation, I, I didn't come with the standard three years of private equity. At the time, I had done uh, slight banking and consulting, and I was doing corporate strategy at Disney. And he kind of saw something in me, and he said, you have great investment instincts and an ability to sort through what matters to make an investment and allowed me to really flourish uh, during my uh, five years at Elevation. And later, I ran his personal investments um, and started doing a lot more early stage stuff with him. So he, those two come to mind as great supporters. And there's been many others uh, that, you know, you work hard and you do your best. And if somebody sees something in you, it becomes a really virtuous reciprocal relationship. Are, do you, are you, do you keep an eye for people younger or in different situations that you can mentor? Like, are you like trying to give back as well? I assume yes, but I, like, it's always good to ask. 100%. First of all, I love to do it. I get asked a lot actually as well. Um, so, and, and I'm happy to do it. I, I try to imagine 
what would help me? And I, I'm a person who really appreciates direct constructive feedback. Mm-hmm. And so I, I often do that. If it's blunt, sometimes maybe a little harsh, I'll do that. But I think it's really uh, for the best. And it, I, I found it to be very positive and constructive because, you know, what you want is to encourage people to go um, and maximize their potential. So, and also I think it's the ethos of, it's, it's the ethos of the Valley. It's the ethos of, I think the younger generations is, I think if you help enough, it'll come back over time. I mean, it's, it's nice to do. I don't think there's a lot of cost to it. And I, I think it makes me feel good and I'm sure it benefits me in some fortuitous or circuitous way sometime. Especially if they're at all related to the things you're interested in. Cause if you, if you help them and they end up like making a brain interface like that, you'll get to play with it. Like they'll, they'll Absolutely. come back to you. Absolutely. So, so move, moving towards like the future, cause you guys are like in the you know first 18 plus months. And so that's pretty early on, or maybe that isn't early on, but it feels early on. No, it is early on. Very early so, on. So like five years from now or like 20 years from now, however long you're going to be doing this, like where, what is like the mountain look like that you're trying to climb? Like, where do you guys want to build? Are you, are you I, I think you're even like a small team, like look on your website. I didn't see like, like a roster of like 30 people. So yeah, no, we are two co-founders and we've recently added another colleague, a um, associate to the team. And then we have um, some advisors that are more or less participating with different uh, kinds of investing activities. So yeah, we're a very, very small team. I, I think the team will generally remain small, although as our portfolio expands and um, as we have more conviction in certain spaces, we may need to grow our team to meet our needs. Um, I don't know that I have a clear where I want this to go in 20 years in terms of scale and size and scope. I can tell you as I look forward towards the next three to five years, um, besides the obvious building a great portfolio and delivering great returns, I think the two tasks at hand are, um, I would like our portfolio to be more distributed. I envision a world, you know, five years from now, our portfolio is a third valley, a third outside the valley, a third outside the US, um, across our sectors, our same sectors that we've outlined as, as what the big questions that we'd like to help address. Um, and continuing building our advisor network because it is all about the people. And our advisor network is some official people that are advisors. And then also this network of founders and co-investors that we collaborate with effectively. And I hope that every interaction I have with every of them is establishing our reputation. And so um, over time, we help people and we deliver real value. And then that just self-perpetuates. And that's my mission for the next, you know, three to five years. Sounds like a good mission. Is there anything you need help with? Like anyone listening, maybe they could help you on or um, anything like that. Any, any help that people listening can help? Yeah, with? I mean, we are looking for the best and brightest that are using breakthrough technologies to really change our world for the better. And if anyone has ideas, teams, interest in this, um, wants to be a team member, you know, feel free to ping us. We have a email on the website. Um, if you have a direct connection, it's even better, um, in terms of filtering, 
but we do try to at least take a cursory look at everything that comes in in any form. Um, so anyone who has any ideas of how to get this done, we'd be delighted to hear from them. Excellent. And then uh, I think I think I have time for like one quick last question, which is favorite books or any recommendations you'd have for people to read. I read a lot. You should see that wall over there is full of books. But um, well, got it. I mean, I publish actually a former boss of mine annually published his reading list and he encouraged me to do that. So I do that this year. I'm on track for my book a week thing. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you um, latest favorites. I mean, I'd have an impossible task picking like all time favorites, but um, Noyal Harari books are, I think, a must read uh, in this day and age to think about where we are and where we're going. Um, the Gene, I think, is a great book to understand some of the interesting stuff that's happening in our world and how our body, uh, how we're understanding our body and how that's changing healthcare in our lives. Um, Jennifer Dodna's uh, A Crack in Creation really explains kind of CRISPR and what it is and how it became what it is. And I think it's an interesting technology. So it's a good book to read. Um, great sci-fi books just to speculate about the world. After On was an interesting book that I read recently that just kind of, you know, takes us. And then there's this, you know, fun fiction. Uh, the Circle, I think, was a not enough sci-fi to be an interesting, funny weekend read and kind of a book club type conversation. Oh, sweet. Um, I'm going to check those out. I've read read a couple of them, especially Gene was fantastic. So if anyone, like if you want to like, anyone out there wants to pick one and they didn't hear all of them, try Gene. It's fantastic. And then you get to understand all the genetic stuff going on. Thanks for joining us today. If you liked what she was saying or if you have a company or you know a company that kind of falls within that skill set or that uh, that is trying to do something like that, send them her way or send them to her, go to the website, you know, fill it out and send them an email because they are very responsive. And really, you know, why not? If you're if you've been thinking about something and you're like, oh, let's see how the funding type of stuff works, you know, send an email, learn about it. But other than that, follow us on Patreon at Learn With All. If you type it in there, it'll be in the show notes, learnwithall.com, and check out the 70 plus other episodes that are up right now, including the video ones. I don't know if you're listening to this or just watching this, but you can do both. One's on YouTube, one's on, one's on just strictly on the website or on iTunes or wherever podcasts can be found. Thank you.